1744, the first golf club with a definite proof of origin was the Company of Gentlemen Golfers Who Played of Leith, now called the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers Who Play at Muirfield. It was that year when several gentlemen of honour, skillful in the ancient and healthful exercise of the golf, petitioned the Edinburgh City Council to donate a silver club for their annual competition on the Leith Links. The winner of the competition was declared captain of the golf for the year, and a silver ball with the date and the captain's name inscribed upon it was attached to the silver club. Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. All right, Colin, we are back with another Silver Club podcast. It is great to be back with you. Our last podcast was with Chris Kallmeyer and Pete Trenum talking about the East Falls Open, the oldest neighborhood golf tournament. Very, very cool. Had a lot of positive traction from that. Uh, just a great old story about the history of golf in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a golf city. It always has been. And we're, we're going to carry that over this week and kind of continue the Philadelphia theme, given that, that this week is the 4th of July on Thursday, and, and we're going to keep giving Philadelphia area some love. We have Chip Lutz, the legendary amateur who has won just about everything there is to win in the mid-amateur, senior-amateur game. And uh, so we're going to get to him momentarily. But, you know, let, let's let's talk a little bit about you had a, uh, a pretty fun time. Marion just opened up. Speaking of great Philadelphia golf, you played there recently. Talk to us about what Marion was like. Well, it was, it was a joy. It was worth the wait. Um, I just have to point out that um, all the changes were done to sort of to sort of uh, look as if no changes were made at all from the golf course from its from its glory days. Um, everything was done with drainage and and some uh, and dealing with the sort of agronomic issues for the greens. Uh, the second green was moved back thirty yards. I mentioned that, and you you couldn't tell the difference. It was a new green versus an old one. Um, the only difference. Uh, one tiny difference was that the 11th green was raised 18 inches and not four feet. Scott and I sort of called me to task based on listening to us last week. Oh, did I did I mention that it was raised four feet? And I balked at that. I didn't. That didn't sound right to me. That was you know. And if I see him, I come up the. I see him in the doorway there by the by the by the putting green in the first team. He goes the four. He goes the 11th green is not a four feet high. You got to make sure you tell Steve Scott that. But that's a. <laughs> Well, an incorrect I'm, rumor. Well, um, you know, first of all, I am completely honored that Scott and I, the head professional, legendary professional at Marion, is listening to our podcast. So we're uh, we're getting some traction out there. So so that's that's first of all, that's great. So maybe I should he's make up some my, more. He's hey. one of my all time favorite guys. <laughs> you know what's cool? He and his brother, his brother Greg, is coach at Penn State, and um. And both of them are some of the most two of the most thoughtful people I've ever I've ever had the pleasure to speak with in in golf and, and partly I partly what I detect from each of them is that um, they're the sons of a of a father who's in two coaching hall of fames. Think about that, both as a golf and golf coach and soccer coach. Uh, so it's in their blood. It's their the, the sort of the instinct to teach and. So anyway, I love I love those guys, and um, I, I come across each of them throughout the year, and it's always a pleasure. It's never never enough time, but yeah, that was that was pretty good. He, he, he I uh, he he wanted to make sure we corrected the record there, but I had a lovely evening, lovely afternoon there, um, and it's uh, I, I thing among the things I love about that course is it doesn't feel like parkland to me. It, it's it's kind of like an open it's there's even though it's on heavy soil, it, there's an aspect of it that's like an open heath, and it there's a British kind of a linksy open inland quality to it that I that I really love. What were the what were the big changes you noticed? I played there once, and I remember the fairways being about as wide as a bowling alley. I mean, do they still have the narrowness in the fairways? I'm sure the wicker baskets haven't haven't moved. Uh, tiny differences. I know uh, the old the old members appreciate. There's a speed slot that's been restored on the right side of the seventh fairway. So if you're willing to sort of challenge the out of bounds and take it down the right, you can kind of get a nice sort of forward kick. That's pretty cool. 
but th- it's just been decluttered around the bunkers. I think I think the um, uh, justifiably fair criticism of the Fazia renovation is that the brows became they looked too heavy and they lost that sort of flashed uh, look, the sort of the white faces of Mary, and it was always um, always a thin top line in the old in the old photos and. Um, and they, the, the historic, the, the historic black and white images from, from, from Jones and Hogan, um, never had the sort of, uh, high fescue growing on the lip, on the, on the sort of tops of the bunker. So, but otherwise just, uh, you know, a, a new bunker here and there that I, that I think I, there's a nice sort of cross bunker carry on 14 that I really like. I think it helped sort of break up what had been a lot of just heavy, thick fescue and, uh really really a an exquisite place i in in uh, a golf course that is a joy to play i it was it was uh it was fun to, it was fun to get back there i look forward i look forward to getting a game with you well that, there. maybe there's a uh yeah maybe there's a little a little match we could play out there sometime. Did you, ever, did you ever did you ever compete on on that course? No, I didn't. I only played it once just for fun and it was awesome. I mean the the with the clubhouse being right off of the first tee there. And I mean, you could, a lefty could shank it right into somebody's lunch. I mean, it would be, uh, <laughs> be pretty dangerous, but yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's a really cool intimate setting right there off the first tee and no mulligans allowed. I'm sure that that's, that hasn't changed at all. And that's a, uh, that was a cool, cool tradition there too, just to get that play off the first tee. But, um, you know, we, we've got to chat about the PGA tour winner. This week, Nate Lashley, uh, what a what a story this guy is. I mean, I mean, did you did you see that event today? Unreal, unreal. That's John Daly esque. I mean, I know it wasn't a major, but being a sort of last alternate coming in, winning it, life changing win with a fabulous, fascinating backstory. Um, that that is that's about as compelling as a story on the PGA Tour or professional sports all year. Yeah, yeah. Um, for those who don't know the backstory, back in college, I mean, this was a good uh, back in 2004. Nate Lashley he played for Arizona and he was playing out in the Western Regional for NCAA, and he was a junior in college. And his par- both his parents and his girlfriend at the time traveled out there on a private plane. Uh, on their way back, the plane went down, and the and the, the all three of them perished. And and you know it took him a long time, really, understandably so, to get back and get his get his mind right. He even back four years ago, uh, when he was thirty two, he he got a real estate license and ended up selling real estate, and you know got out of the game, but realized, hey, he loved it so much that he had to get back in. Uh, he was the last alternate into the field this week. Even uh, I, I think you had you had said that he was uh, the 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 last alternate who didn't get into the field at Travelers, and then Monday went to the Monday qualifier this week in Detroit, and then uh, he, he didn't make it through the Monday qualifier, but ended up getting through on the alternate list and found out Wednesday he was in the tournament, and uh, all of a sudden fires a couple sixty threes in the first and third round, ends up winning by six. Great story. Shoots like plays like a man possessed, and it shows you the sort of fascinating depth of the PGA Tour that this guy can can he's made he's in, essentially made thirty two career starts, one top ten, and then and it had there has to be some aspect to coming off the off the um, you know the. Uh, off the list on Wednesday as an alternate that just sort of gave him sort of house money. And he played the best, he saved the best golf of his life for four rounds and set a, set a, a wicked 50, a 72 hole scoring record. And he's now, his life has changed and I love it. That is as a good story. And then, you know, back to back, I mean, I know it's a little closer to home for me, as Reevee and Zach Zucker, each of them, what a, what a, between the two of them and, and Nate, th- three stories of of uh, perseverance and 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 fighting on and grinding on and doing it doing it when you need it most and changing your life and changing the arc of your career and 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 being a sort of 
a critical a critical validating paycheck when you need it most. I I know for some of these guys that you know Rory wins, Phil wins. That sort of it's the rounding error, and they're sort of when that money's direct when that direct deposit money shows up on Monday morning. But <laughs> I, I think it was pretty refreshing to hear about Zach Zucker talking about how he basically bet on himself and maxed his cards. And, and uh, same for Nate, like he's now on tour two years. Good for him. I'm he's just add him to the long list of people. You just can't wait to root for when you see him at an event or when you, when you're looking down the leaderboard, hopefully it, hopefully it really leads to sort of sustained, uh, sustained sort of, PGA Tour uh, achievement. Well, that gives him a lot of, uh, for sure, and it gives him a lot of bonuses, uh, not to mention a 2020 Masters berth, too. So, uh, man, his life has absolutely changed, not only the, the $1.3 million uh, that he received from winning, but you know, all of the all of the the opportunities he will now get going forward in Monday qualifiers. He's not going to have to worry about that for a long time. Amazing. Uh, so, so uh, very cool, very cool. A- another guy, uh, and you know, being that this is kind of uh, the Silver Club podcast, really touts amateur the amateur game. Doc Redman, former U.S. amateur champion from Riviera Country Club, a few years back, he finished second today and earned seven hundred eighty-eight thousand and a whole bunch of FedEx Cup points. Ended up getting special temporary uh, exemption on the PGA Tour for the remainder of the year. Can receive unlimited sponsor exemptions. Uh, he's probably going to, he's going to pretty much lock up his tour card, uh, as well. So he had a tie for 18th at the Welsh Fargo a few months back and now a second place, solo second place at the Rocket Mortgage. So, uh, kudos to Doc Redman, another player on, uh, not on the professional stage, but on the amateur stage, Scott Harvey, uh, a fellow North Carolinian. <laughs> he, he's, uh, he, he won. Uh, the George Thomas Invitational out at LACC recently, uh, just a few days ago. And he had recently, uh, won the George Coleman Invitational at Seminole. So he's just winning on great golf courses coast to coast. This guy. Wow. Harvey. What a, what a, what a, what a double dip on the, the, those two events. That's pretty impressive. I mean, he's got to be putting himself right in the, right in the mix for a Walker Cup spot, you would think, right? Absolutely. That's the kind of guy that, you know, they, they need the USGA needs the Walker Cup team that isn't professional within a within a week or a six months after the match is over. And so I'm all for I'm all for the sort of career amateurs on their list. Um, especially especially when they're sort of playing to that I mean, those are those are major those are major amateur invitationals. There's no doubt about it. No doubt. Yeah, you know, I, I have to say on, on the flip side of things, I'm actually, uh, I know Matthew Wolf had an amazing year as a collegian, won five times at Oklahoma State, just won the NCAA championship individually uh, a month or so ago. He turns pro at the Travelers, foregoes his opportunity to play on the Walker Cup team. And uh, you know what? Hey, maybe that's going to open up another spot. For a player, maybe maybe even your player, uh, James Nicholas, maybe he'll even get a uh, a little a little love and finished recently third place in the Sunny Hannah Amateur. You know, you never know. I don't want to touch the money, and I, <laughs> but that's on his wish list. I mean, I yeah, it's, I, hard, it's hard, isn't it? He's got listen. He he's gonna gonna keep playing. He's you know I I'm too biased to comment on this sort of uh, you know impartially, but. Um, they should also factor that, you know, when a kid has a graduates with a biology major and has a sort of four Oh for a spring semester, like you know, does the Walker cup committee ever take into account sort of a, you know, the brain, major he's got brains, you know? from the Ivy league. <laughs> he's got some, he's got some serious brains and, uh, yeah, anyway, but, uh, yeah, a lot so of tell people- me what was your, tell me what some of your favorite aspects of your, of your terrific interview with, with with Chip, what's your what's three years? What would what's the sort of in you know in, in hindsight having sort of had the interview and listened to it? Well, well, you're gonna everybody's gonna listen to it in a moment with with Chip Lutz, but you know Chip is a wonderful a wonderful person. First of all, I mean he is a uh, he's just a total gentleman. He couldn't be nicer. He did the right. He just did everything right. He actually came out and and played a practice round at. at at our major at Hidden Creek recently, and 
He actually played in our major recently at Hidden Creek uh, and played in our practice round with a few of our members. And, you know, he didn't have to come out and do that, but he did and came in and, and spoke to us that night. And we, we turned it into this, this podcast. So, uh, but Chip Lutz is just a great player. It takes, takes his game very seriously, but he's, but he's very simple in what he does and his methodology and in getting, uh, in just playing his, his game. I mean, he doesn't, overthink it doesn't you know go crazy on the technical aspect of the game he keeps it really simple and i think that's a great lesson for all of our listeners out there keep it simple with your game you know find one or two things that work and just beat that to death yeah that's true every every time i've um my game has gone sideways or i've it's it's taken a step back in my career it's it's always probably because I derailed it in myself by trying to sort of want to make an improvement, you know, and I, and, it, and I, I regretted it in hindsight. I was always too, uh, I was always wanting to sort of not have the club be so shut or my grip not be strong. And then, in, you know, it's, boy, would I've liked to have gone back to when I was playing in my peak. Do you ever feel, do you ever sort of have that sort of temptation yourself? What were your sort of own sort of, um, you know your own sort of your 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 own take. You know your own take on your game, your own willingness to to sort of make adjustments to improve your own dissatisfaction with with aspects of your game. That's really what it was. It's the perceived dissatisfactions or under under uh, over overvaluing them. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think I think for me personally, back you know as an amateur and I turned pro in the fall of 1999, I think one of the you know, in my in my upbringing in college, I, I really didn't have a swing coach. I just played this sweeping draw. I kind of knew what it was going to do, and I hold a lot of putts. I got up and down from wherever I needed to get up and down from, and and I played with a lot of hearts and a lot of a lot of heart and a lot of guts, and and that was kind of my game. And uh, it was a little scrappy, and and I you know I just I fought for every shot that I had, and you know, I didn't have all the physical attributes like some of the guys I played with coming up, like Charles Howell or or Hank Keeney, who bombed it forever. Um, but I, I found a way to score, and, and uh, you know, before before golf kind of started to really change with the with the new golf ball and in, uh, in, in two, the year two thousand, and uh, so it, it was interesting. But you know, really, the the game, you know, if you if you know what your golf ball does, if you can work it one way, that's great. Bruce Litsky made a made a career on the PGA Tour, winning thirteen times hitting a power fade and, and just work that to death. So, you know, you find what works with you for, for you and a, 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 a certain shot shape that you can depend on and you just, you run with it. And I think that's the best thing you can do. The instinct we all have, or the sort of, the sort of feeling that we all have to want to sort of get even better is, is what got people to a high level, but it, it has a chance to simultaneously in the in the effort to get a little higher higher, there's always that sort of chance that you sort of slip slip from the rock and fall down and hurt yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, I, it's a fine I, line. You can't blame. You, don't bl- you can't blame. I, I I realize you know you can't blame wanting to get better, but it's it's interesting that there's a, a point in your game and your and your self improvement that you almost sort of need to know when to say when, I think that's a tricky thing. That's definitely, you see that all the time. You see that discussed all the time. You know, I mean, you can, you can look at it from tiger or anyone else. Like it's where you can't, you can't blame someone for wanting to get better uh, because it was, it, it didn't, it's what brought them their success or their, their sort of, their sort of greatness in the first place. But there's something beautiful about the sport we play that no matter how well it's going, we're all sort of led to believe that we could do even better. <laughs> well, no, there's no doubt about that. And when you turn professional, when you cross that bridge from amateur to professional, it is it is a uh, it is another level you have to get to. And some people some people get there and some people they just don't quite make the transition. But but our next guest right now, Chip Lutz, he never even decided to turn pro. And you're going to hear his story about how he went through from the University of Florida. He played with the Augusta National Chairman Fred Ridley back in college for a few years. And uh, so we got some great stories from Chip Lutz, and he's going to be coming up here in just a moment. 
Okay, Colin, but before we get to this week's guest with Chip Lutz, I wanted to say we couldn't host this podcast without the help of the Silver Club Golfing Society. Our golfing society is growing every day, and as the proud founder of the Silver Club Golfing Society, I'm talking with great people all about the virtues and our tournament schedule and everything surrounding what we're doing with the SCGS We just had a great event at the Inverness Club recently, and congratulations to Chuck Nettles from Oakmont Country Club who captured the title at Inverness. We also couldn't have our podcast without the help of our wonderful partners, and this week it's the Turtleson Company who has really helped us out in giving us some wonderful apparel to give our members and our guests who play in our events. They are dedicated to the all-season type of guy, helping them transition effortlessly from the office to the clubhouse, from the boardroom to the barroom. Turtleson is everything you need in apparel. Really wonderful company and have supported us very, very strongly with the SCGS. Another company who has supported us very, very well is the Dunhill Company. And just remember, if you play in an event, Your name will get into our raffle to be picked for a trip for two of a lifetime over to Scotland for the Dunhill Links in 2020. So check that out. If you want to play some of the country's best courses and hit shots that matter, then the Silver Club Golfing Society is where you need to be. You know that we can always see us on social media, on Instagram and Twitter at Silver Club Golf and on the web at SilverClubGolfingSociety.com. Okay, now let's get to this week's guest. Chip Lutz. For those who were at the Palmer Four Ball at Bay Hill, we had Steve Melnick join us and we turned it into a Silver Club podcast. We have the luxury here tonight to be joined by legendary amateur Chip Lutz. He is uh, he's done about everything there is to do in the game. It's just it's really really special to have you here, Chip. Well, thank you. <laughs> I've done everything that there is to do as a senior. <laughs> <laughs> we are we're here. We're recording this right now from Hidden Creek Golf Club, where you jumped over the, th- the threshold, really, in, in the U.S. senior golf. There was three times you were a semifinalist right. in the U.S. senior amateur and hadn't won, and you came here to the Hidden Creek Golf Club searching for that elusive victory, and you got it. Finally. It was uh, probably the most difficult thing that I had ever done. I thought I'd never do it because I, in three semifinal appearances, I lost just about every which way you can think of <laughs> uh, by either playing really well. I'll uh, never forget my loss at um, Vinnie Giles' course, Kinlock, down in Virginia. Um, I played great. I played against Phil Pleat from Nashua, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm and shot six under par in my final round and lost on the last hole. <laughs> so that was the most disappointing loss. Um, that was the second time, and prior to that I had lost it. Um, in my first appearance, that was at Lake Nona mm-hmm. down in Orlando. But it was really the breakthrough moment for my career because, you know, match plays, I think, mm-hmm. perhaps one of the most difficult formats mm-hmm. to win. And uh, it was one of those things where after three losses – Friends of mine would. Somebody said to me, "Well, maybe you're not really very good at match play." And I thought about that for a moment. I'm like, <laughs> "Well, wait a minute. Who else has gotten this far in this many times, and then gone on, to, you know, and lost?" So it really was something that my semifinal match here, I was up against uh, Tim Jackson, and that was probably the biggest turning point was to actually get by him. I had a three-up lead here. In the semifinal match, we'll, we'll, we'll get into really some of more of the details yeah. in in a moment. But okay. uh, and and what a what a monumental victory that was for you, and and very special to be here this week at Hidden Creek Golf Club Indeed. with the opportunity to play in our second major championship with the Silver Club Golfing Society this week, called the Jackpot. Uh, very. <laughs> Apropos, yeah, for the uh, for the area, but let's just go back for for a yeah. little bit to your roots, back into mm-hmm. Reading, Pennsylvania, growing up with uh, with a father who learned from one of the greatest of all time, Byron Nelson. Well, golf was a part of my family from uh, early on. My dad was a professional golfer mm-hmm. at one point, nineteen fifty fifty one. Uh, there was really not much money out there on tour at that time. So he only survived a year and then uh, came back to the family business, which was in uh, a funeral business. So he was the third generation owner. And my brother, Putter, 
uh, what was now the, is now the fourth, and his son John is is now the incoming fifth generation for the family business. So that's pretty impressive um, to to make it that far. <laughs> so my grandfather uh, had actually been one of the owners of the Reading Country Club. And uh, back in 1937 through 39, Byron Nelson had been recruited to be the head pro from his assistant position in New Jersey. So he had come to the Reading Country Club, spent three years there. 37, he won the Masters, which was really one of his most precious wins. And in 1939, he won the U.S. Open at Philadelphia Country Club nearby. So uh, during the, interestingly enough, during the 39 open win, he was in a playoff and he played with against Denny Shute mm-hmm. and um, Craig Wood. Craig Wood was the head pro at Wingfoot at the time. And he mentioned to Craig that he was going to be leaving the Reading and ultimately went to Inverness, which is another host site of one of your events. Yes, yes. And um, Anyway, uh, he told Craig about his departure from the Reading going to Inverness, and Craig said, oh, hey, I've got a great young guy to come potentially interview, and it was Henry Poe. Henry Poe became the uh, president of the PGA of America in the 70s then, went on to great uh, great things. But um, my father was kind of in the midst of all that. He was taught by Byron succeeded by Henry Poe, who was almost like a father to my dad. So golf was very early on a uh, very prominent thing in our family. And, of course, you might have heard that, and I've talked about uh, my brother's names. My older brother was Wedge. I'm Chip, and my younger brother's Putter. So uh, you could tell my father had a good golf sense of humor because <laughs> we're all named John. But uh, yeah, that would be that would be yeah. too plain, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. <laughs> <laughs> so, so talking about a little the, the the lessons though that your father, you being such a great player and having done so much in the game that we'll get to in a moment, but the lessons you learned through your father from Byron Nelson directly. What sort of things do you bring to your own game today? Yeah, that's a great question. I have a lot of memories, but it's mostly mental images I continue to retain from my father and his game. He actually was a very long hitter and was not much different in size than me. But he used to use these uh, uh, Louise Sugg women shafts with a McGregor head with a lead weight in the back. And I'll never forget these things. And he he would have the really long kind of a whippy swing. And, I mean, he could hit some wicked duck hooks, I'm telling you. (laughs) But he could also hit them extremely far, and he had a great swing. But his was a very strong overhand left uh, grip. And with that, he just really created a lot of leverage. So when I I saw that, and I saw him lose control a lot, and I mimicked that swing uh, for years but it wasn't until I was in my teenage years, of course, we're all rebellious as teenagers, right? <laughs> so I started seeing another local guy, Jeff Steinberg, hit the ball high and left to right. And I'm like, how'd you do that? You know, I kind of like that. So he was a much more neutral grip-oriented guy. And it really started me to think differently about the game, a little differently about the swing. So, so you know, as much as I've really taken from my father – There were other things that influenced me along the way, which I created my own style and swing. And, you know, thankfully for my dad, he had the, uh, you know, the courage to let me go kind of my way a bit. Uh, But still, the the basic principles of the game were something that was instilled by him. And he could recognize the things at times that I was doing uh, that might help me uh, overcome challenges with my game or but it was largely tempo, it was you know alignment, it was simple things about the game. And that's what I always go back to, is what works is what is simplest, and back to the basics. And those are the things I remember most. Other than maybe some technical golf lessons that you mm-hmm. learned over time, what sort of thing did your father, Buddy, instill in you as far as life lessons surrounding the game or even, even outside the game? Oh, boy, that's a good question. He was pretty hot-headed, so I hope that not get that. <laughs> but, you know, in that became the uh, the instinct to win. I could see that in my dad. He was a competitor, but he also, you know, had an in, 
inside desire. And I could tell that I, I could tell he was at times, you know, very uh, emotional about things. You know, he wasn't happy about things, but he had a way to internalize that during his game, uh, overcome those objections and, uh, and bad things that occur to all of us out there and find a way to look for the next shot, look for the best opportunity and try to create something positive out of a negative situation. So so it was his competitive desire, his capability, his imagination, because he would hit these shots like recovery shots from anywhere. It's kind of like more like today's game where I think these kids hit it so far right. and they hit it a field, but they aren't worried about that because they know they're going to be close and they can recover. So that was kind of my dad's really aggressive game style. And uh, I'm not quite that way. I'm a little more conservative. So <laughs> take a little good with the bad. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Now, but golf is a really long race. You know, mm -hmm. in the in the in the competitive golfing game, there's people. Uh, you know, we'll say parents out there that maybe push their kids early into getting being great players young and early, especially nowadays where college scholarships are so right. sought after and whatnot. When you went to college, you went to the University of Florida. I did, just fellow like Gator. me, fellow Gator, fellow Gator. Like Steve Melnick, our, our past uh, podcast <laughs> guest, and and uh, maybe we'll have all Gators on this on this uh, podcast awesome. here. But the um, you spent a couple of years there. You played with the likes of Fred Ridley, mm -hmm. correct? Uh, U.S. Amateur Champion, nineteen seventy six. Now the current seventy five. Seventy five. I was close. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I was born in seventy seven. Sorry. <laughs> um, and now the current. Uh, Chairman at Augusta National, uh, and other other like uh, Andy Bean. Andy Bean. Who, who else did you play with? Gary Florida? Coke. Gary, Gary Coke. We all know for as an announcer, uh, great player out of Tampa, and still can play. I mean, Gary can pick it up and you know give it a go, make these qualifiers, play in some of these majors, and he's still a great player. Uh, we also had um, uh, well, there's some guys that you may not have known. Um, Kevin Morris was out of New York, great player. Kip Minner was my fraternity big brother. He was the captain of the team that year. Um, Steve Smyers, golf course architect yep. out of Tampa as well. So we had really a, a great litany of guys, that, uh, very capable. We won the NCAAs my mm -hmm. first year there in 1973. But you were there just on. a couple of years, though. Well, I was. You know, I was coming out of the Northeast. I wasn't maybe as known. I was mm -hmm. a walk-on, and mm -hmm. I qualified for two years in a row. And after the second year, you know, they had that thing called Title IX. So they cut back scholarships. We had eight fulls out, and we were going back to five over the next few years. We win the NCAA my first year, graduate one guy, and it's not looking good for me. <laughs> so uh, I stayed on there at Florida, graduated from school, and then came back up to the Northeast afterward. So your competitive career didn't really start off with the bang that it's kind of ending, you know, kind yeah, of ending yeah. with, not that it's over by any means. Because <laughs> you, <laughs> you can flat out play. But <laughs> did, when, when you were coming up, did you ever have thoughts of turning professional? You know, I never really did. You know, I went to law school and – and got involved in business, had a family, and there was a period of time I just really didn't play competitively. In fact, it's pretty interesting. I never really tried to play in the U.S. Amateur all those years, and wasn't until I was in my, uh, it was 1998 was the first time I even tried to play in a national event, and that was the U.S. Mid-Am, and I was 43 at the time. So I had gone a long stretch without really playing in many state, regional, and national events, but that period from 93 to 98 I actually quit playing mm -hmm. but uh, it was in that timeline um, that I had actually gone to visit with Byron Nelson and stayed at his home uh, for th three days and two nights wow. and I went out and played golf with he and Peggy at the time and I shot 67 I was playing a match against them and Byron on the first he said well what are we going to do I mean I'll we'll play you uh, I hadn't played much because it was like March coming out of the Northeast. And uh, I said, well, how about if you give me three, you know, and I'm because I'm playing your best ball net. <laughs> so and I'm giving Peggy 18 and Byron 12. <laughs> I'm thinking I got to get at least three. <laughs> right? So never saw the course before. It was a TPC. 
and mm-hmm. out there at uh, Cottonwood, I think is the name of the course. The first green is like the shape of Texas, as I remember <laughs> it. And um, so I go around the front and I shoot three under par. And after three under par, I'm all even with them for the front nine. I'm like, oh, my God, how can I you know, possibly win this match? I go another three under. I'm six under on the round going into 18th. And I miss the green, chip up about eight feet. And wouldn't you know, I missed the putt, make bogey. And Peggy got on the green in three and two putts for five net four, and they beat me one down. <laughs> I was like, what? And I'm telling you, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because Byron, to see his excitement going in the clubhouse, for him to tell all his friends that he beat me and I shot 67, you know, was really pretty precious. And, you know, one of the things I'll always remember uh, in Byron, and much like my dad, you know, it's the simple things that are really important. And I hadn't been playing much competitive golf to that point, but I asked him, I said, you know, what do you think I should do? Do you have any suggestions for me in my game? And uh, Byron looked at me and he said, you've got a great game. He said, all you need to do is go out and play. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was the only thing he said to me. And, um, you know, I remembered that very, very much and uh, reflect on that often because it really, you know, is, is a game that, for me is got a lot of roots, got a lot of, uh, you know, heritage and experience and opportunity. And that really gave me the confidence to just think, trust mm-hmm. in yourself and trust in your game and do what you know best and just play with what you have. And that really has been, you know, a, a good thing for me. For all the people that are, that are here tonight at Hidden Creek and everybody listening on the podcast, instruction is really teaching the people coming up you know, whether it's juniors, any amateurs, even some professionals who are listening to this. What sort of things do you do in your game? You're so consistent in your game. Three times, uh, or excuse me, four times low amateur in the British Senior Open. Uh, You've won (coughs) numerous. You won the British Senior Open three times, Senior Amateur three three times. You won the Canadian Senior Amateur twice. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. Senior Amateur once. So six major Senior Amateur wins. Right. There's obviously some formula that you have that these other guys don't. Can you give us a little oh. peek behind the curtain what that is? I, I don't have any real secret sauce other than the fact that um, I try to put myself in that position enough times that some something will happen. Um, I always look for the final nine and, uh, you know, to be close and to be in the last pairing or two and try to be in a position to win. And I feel that the experience that I have, having been there enough times, and, and I really kind of worked hard at that in the first year or two of my senior career, senior am career. Leading up to it, of course, I was anticipating, you know, trying to play well, concentrate, work on the fundamentals of my game. But then, then it became getting into as many tournaments as I could, getting into the final round and be in a position to win and finally executing on that. And the success just seems to breed more success and more confidence. So in my mind, it was really all about repetition, exposure, experience, build on the capabilities and the trust and the confidence that you have in yourself and try to make that work for you to your favor. And have the mindset that, you know, if I'm in this position, I've got at least as good a chance or better chance than the other guy because, you know, I've been there before and I can do this. And it really was more about a confidence thing, I think, for me and my mindset uh, to try to, uh, but but the senior amateur was the biggest one. Then it became a, a bit of a burden to try to get by that semifinal victory and move on to success in the finals. A lot like our previous guest on our podcast Vinny Giles we had him on a couple a couple episodes ago yeah and interviewed him from Kinlock Club and he was he had some wonderful stories he's a Georgia Bulldog though so we don't like him as much (laughs) because of that but no we all love Vinny Giles what a what a a credit to the game and uh just like yourself and but but just like Vinny, Vinny was the runner-up in the U.S. Amateur three times before mm. he finally won. Interesting. When you got here that. to Hidden Creek Golf Club and you were oh so close, semifinals, you were just you were knocking at the door. Constantly. What did you tell yourself at that week in 2015 to put you over the edge? 
Well, I had been here, fortunately, with Roger Hansen, the former owner of Hidden Creek. I had been exposed to the club before. I knew a bit about the golf course. I had a little more confidence. And, you know, what really was um, the one thing that stood out in my mind was how close I was to home. And interestingly enough, uh, part of the story of my victory was my mom. And honestly, my mom is now 92. She'll be 93 coming up in August of this year, and she's doing great and love her to death. But she had never watched me play in a championship match or any golf for that matter. My mom was so great in dropping us off the club, picking us up, and always being supportive of us. But, you know, interestingly enough, mom was never really at any of the competitions. And the night I made it through the semifinals, but I kind of had this thought, my brother putter might bring her down for my final match. And that gave me a little bit of inspiration because I was hopeful that if I would make it, that I would make that call on Wednesday night and my mom would get down here. And sure enough, they left at 5 a.m. from Reading, drove down here early in the morning, and my mom was here to see me for every hole of the final match. And I couldn't help but win that that match in that tournament right here because I was under the gun and I had to perform. And uh, but it was a special moment where I was able to really pull through, and it was an honor, you know, to do it in you know in front of mom. Well, and it came down. You didn't you didn't make it too close. Fortunately, you didn't give yourself no. any uh, heart palpitations. You won four and three uh, on the fifteenth hole. Right out there, you took the flag stick home, and you've got that. <laughs> Absolutely. At home, and uh, you've got that under lock and key there. But when you won that senior amateur, mm -hmm. you were you had the dubious distinction of being the last USGA national champion to putt with a long anchored oh putter. Oh my god, I can't believe you know that. <laughs> <laughs> I was it, oh, that's a trivia question. By it's, the way. it's it's a <laughs> it's a total trivial pursuit question. Chip Lutz was the last amateur last player to win a usj That's national right. championship with an anchored putter when when that change happened mm -hmm. what sort of what sort of feelings did you have when you knew it was coming and now how have you adjusted over time to maintain your level of solid play that you have yeah well it was obviously going to be a challenge i was uh, not real keen on the change i thought the usga was making a bit of a mistake and you know, I, I said so, not real loud, but I was kind of beating the drum a little bit. But, um, you know, I, I realized, though, that I was actually a very good short putter, traditional putter, before I went to the long, to the anchored long. But more than anything, I think I was concerned about the implications and the sort of thought that somebody might believe that I may have anchored along the way or, you know, somehow improperly done something. And been called about that. So the fact that I was really a, an effective short putter to begin with um, actually made it easy for me to go back. So I transitioned um, back to the short putter, but with a claw grip um, going from an anchored long. And, you know, it was kind of interesting after I won the USGA Senior Am here, they'd asked me if I'd like to donate a club to the USGA. And I thought long and hard about that because obviously my putter was the most important club in the bag and it was the most significant thing uh, particularly because of the band going into place for anchoring and I had two putters just like that so I had the one I putted with the entire time and then I had a backup which was like brand new so I was thinking do I give them the replica or do I give them the real deal and you know I thought long and hard about it and finally I decided you know what I got to give them the real thing because if I don't, I'm going to always think about going back. <laughs> You're going to always I know make that this you did. switch. I'm going all all in. <laughs> Interesting. So Interesting. I gave them the original, and it's up in Golf House and uh, in their storage somewhere. Moment in yeah. history. It should be it should be framed in a beautiful case, and <laughs> that's uh, that is some story yeah. there. All right, we're getting towards the end. We have got a few more questions for you. Okay. 2053. Do you know what that number represents? 2053. It might be a year, but that's awful far away. <laughs> okay, so that number that number represents your World Amateur Golf ranking right now. Oh my gosh! Okay. No kidding. So I didn't know they went that high. <laughs> 
Which, which to me, and now I would personally take you ahead of thousands of of amateurs and and any day of the week go out there and play a match against somebody uh i watched you today you have you have an extremely consistent great game fortunately you were able to get out there with a couple of our silver club members and that was very special to to share some stories around hidden creek and and uh but but having said that and 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 i think about that because you're the level of play that you've exuded over time last year you you played in the US senior british open you shoot 69 in the first round you're on the leaderboard you're you're in the mix of major championships yeah. and do you think over time that the especially maybe in the last 10 to 15 years and a lot of the time where you've actually been the the competitive amateur player that you are since 1998 that you referenced earlier mm-hmm. Do you think the mid-amateur is a little bit, sh- I don't know, not shunned, but maybe pushed back a little bit because of all the, and, and to get into these top amateur events and as a whole, I mean, I know you get to play in some fantastic events, but as a whole, what, what is your take on on the mid-amateur game right now versus the college game and how they're able to access some of these great amateur tournaments around the country? Well, I think the mid-amateur game, there, there's, there's a focus on trying to get that more to the forefront. Um, some of the events that I've been playing in, the regional events, the invitational events, uh, are trying to really focus, I think, a little bit more on the mid-am game at the moment. So I'm, I'm happy to see that because there's a, it's an awful big age group. And, you know, once these collegiate guys come out, they're either going to, you know, go into the pros or they're going to go to work. And when they go to work, they, they have it and they need to find an opportunity because at 25 to 55 is a big stretch of years. And, you know, you, you tend to lose guys. I, I was lost in that for a long time. But for me, it was really time and place to enter into the senior game, which really was my last opportunity to really do the things I want to do personally. So I, I hope that they continue to advance the the mid-am opportunities uh, to give you know the breadth of the game a little more chance to be recognized and to play well. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if I answered your question. <laughs> I think I think you may have. I think you may have. We'll we'll, we'll leave that to debate. Um, <laughs> 2018 was really an up and down year in the in the Lutz family overall. Uh, yeah. um, you, you had on the golf course, you played some spectacular golf. You played the British Senior Open at the home of golf, St. Andrews. Yeah, like I mentioned, you were you're on the board. You're in the mix. You you made it to the semifinals again of the yeah. U.S. Mid-Amateur at senior Eugene Am. Country. Senior, senior, senior Am. Amateur, excuse yep. me, at Eugene Country Club. Right. And eventually losing to the overall champion, Jeff Wilson, 2-1. and one, right. Guy who was playing some magnificent golf. Talk about how the year impacted you and how were you able to kind of push some of the your family things aside? You had you had a, a death in the family yeah. and just uh, and, and how were you able to kind of push that aside and compartmentalize that and play so well? Uh, that was a, it was a very difficult year for me. It really kind of changes perspective sometimes on things. And uh, my brother Wedge passed away June 1st of last year. And then my wife's mother uh, passed away on the 14th of June. So it was very uh, difficult. She was in failing health, so we expected that, but my brother was very unexpected. And uh, Wedge and I were very close. We share the same birthday, exactly one year apart, and uh, family's close. But he'd been in Phoenix for quite a few years, about 22 years. But his passing was very, very challenging for all of us in the family. And um, the only thing I could really do is try to think of him and think of the family and honor his presence in my mind and my spirit because he was a you know really great competitor and great player and more than that he was a, he was just a great family man and brother and had a strong faith and uh, I carry a lot of that strong faith and he really instilled a lot of great values uh, you know with me so I was able I think only through through that grace to uh, you know overcome those tragedies. What a, that's a great way to honor that legacy. Um, so with all of you done in the game of golf, mm. and like you mentioned in the game of senior golf, what do you feel is your number one <clears throat> accomplishment? What is 
the greatest accomplishment in the mind of Chip Lutz? Well, I think it's right here. I think it's U.S. Senior Amateur right here. To win a USGA event meant more to me than anything. Um, the British Senior Amateur winners were clearly right behind that. Uh, and then, actually, the the uh, success I've had in the British Senior Open and the U.S. Senior Open and gathering a few uh, low amateur titles there uh, kind of gave me the sense of accomplishment that, to know that I was capable, you know, and I was able to play at that level and I was able to succeed at that level and just gave me, uh, you know, a great deal of um, um, good feelings about where I've been and how far I've come and what I've accomplished. So the difficult task will be, you know, how to try to process all that at this yeah. point in my age and yeah. kind of gather get together another game plan on where I go from here. I think that's going to be the hardest thing for me to do in the near term. Yeah, and at the age of 64 right now, mm -hmm. how many more great competitive years do you feel like you have left in your mind? Well, it depends if I want to be like Vinny Giles and try to seek another a continued level of success for a long period of time or I want to go out you know, early and call it quits. <laughs> I haven't really come to terms with that yet. So not, so. not quite definite, uh, no definite no, plan I right don't, now. I don't, but I'm definitely slowing down my schedule, yeah. playing in fewer events, trying to plan some more fun things. So um, I enjoyed the day-to-day -day and being here and playing in some casual mm -hmm. golf uh, events and maybe a better ball here or there and member guest and <laughs> just kind of uh, enjoying the game. When that day does come that you decide yeah. to not not play competitively anymore, at least maybe on the national stage, yeah. what what do you really want to look back and have your legacy be in this game, really? Uh, that's a great question. Well, honesty, uh, fairness, uh, you know, being a gentleman in the game, being respectful of the course, the players, and the camaraderie and the opportunity. Just a lot of good things that golf has to offer, and uh, I'm grateful for them all. Well, we can't thank you enough for being here tonight and sharing your stories and your just your graciousness to the game. And really, you really embody the spirit of the game of golf in my mind. I know we, oh, we've just met you. today. I've seen everything you've done over the years from afar and just been a, a, a true fan. Oh, and uh, I really appreciate you spending time with us today oh. here at Hidden Creek and on the Silver Club podcast. So, Certainly my pleasure. Thank you, thank Chip. You, thank you. Thank you.